The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Fathers, we just sang and considered your gracious move towards us in the gospel, your love of us in Jesus. We think about that. And as it comes home to us, what rises up in the hearts of your people, the hearts of your children, is a love and a joy that is inexpressible. So says this verse, and unfortunately some of our lives don't match that. And so in that gap right there between what the verse says and what, what the song implies and what our lives actually are, in the gap between those two things, that's right, right in that spot I pray for you to move and to work even in this morning so as to make what we experience and how we think and feel and walk in the moments of our lives match what should rightly be so given what is true, what is true of us, your people. You have loved us and secured for us an inheritance and it is kept in heaven for us all by you, all by your grace. And so help us now from this moment, Lord, and increasingly so in the next moment and tomorrow and next week, to though we can't see you, love you. To rejoice with a, a deep, wide love, a joyful love, a, a thrilled love, a glorious love. Help us to rejoice like that, knowing that we are receiving the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Give us eyes to see that. Give us eyes to know it. I just prayed already, Lord, this is a work of you. We can't make this happen. So I ask you now, between what our experience is and what should be, would you close the gap? Would you fill in the holes? Would you build up your people? Would you, would you honor your name increasingly so in the individual lives here and in the life of this, of this corporate body of this church? Do this work here this morning, Lord. Build your people. Cause Christ to become increasingly our treasure. Spirit of God, would you move in this room now and have your way with, with each one of us? We come from a hundred different places this morning. Would you... Would you gather us here together, gather us mentally, gather our hearts here together, and we can sit under your ministry, Holy Spirit, under your ministry of the Word here. Arrest our attention and speak to us truth, press it into us and make us new with it. Reshape how we think right now, today, in this moment. Reshape how we think and how we feel. 
lift up Christ in front of our eyes. Spirit of God, if there is sin that you need to bring to our attention right now that stands as a barrier between us and, and this, your ministry, then, then do that. Confront us with sin and, and lead us to repentance even now. Clear away all obstacles. Bring the high places down and fill in the low places and make straight the path of the Lord into our hearts right now, I pray. Illumine the word. Lift up Christ. Build your church. Thank you, Father, for the ministry of Jesus, for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You are good to give us so many rich blessings like these. And I pray now that you would do a work among us to build us up and to honor Christ. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. I think as I consider this sermon and as I've thought about it and prayed about it, this passage, I want us this morning to enjoy something marvelous. Whether or not I can communicate that is an open question. But my prayer has been that the Spirit of God would communicate something to each of us here that we would enjoy something, someone, and then something marvelous. So, with expectation, come to the Word and say, Spirit of God, minister to me and to us here this morning. Towards that end, we turn our attention to the end of Luke chapter 7. And we were here last week as well, considering this lengthy story about Jesus at a dinner party. And as you'll recall, we are not given many of the details about when, where, why, other than the fact that it was a formal dinner hosted by a Pharisee named Simon. Evidently, he invited Jesus over because he wanted to check him out a little bit. Many of the Pharisees at this point hate Jesus and oppose him. He's, he's clearly well known. But obviously, at the moment at least, Simon and his friends are still undecided, unsure as to whether or not Jesus may in fact be sent from God in some capacity or another. So they still have this question in their minds, a question that Luke assumes some of his readers, us, whether we're inside the church or from outside looking in, assumes that some of us have as well, they have this question, who is this Jesus exactly? What is he? That's in their mind as they recline around the table, looking at him, listening to him, eating this feast with him, and then this woman arrives and changes everything. Verse 38 describes what happens, and you recall, it's a mess. This woman had heard that Jesus was there, so she, she comes, prepared to anoint his feet. She brings this perfume. She's going to pour out everything that she owns, probably the most expensive thing that she has. She's going to pour it out on his feet to anoint him in honor. But before she gets to that, she actually just loses it emotionally. She stands at his feet. You picture this. They're reclined around a table, and she's right at his feet, a few feet away from this table, standing over them, weeping uncontrollably. 
she's just pouring out tears, showering his feet, and then she lets down her hair in an inappropriate way. She lets down her hair and stoops down to wipe his feet, and then she kisses his feet in, in a show of reverence and honor to him, and then finally she gets around to anointing him. The text describes it as this ongoing event, as this awkward moment that goes on and on and just will not end. It's awkward because of what she's doing and especially because of who she is. She's not just any old woman. You'll recall twice she is described as a sinner, which most likely means that she was known as a prostitute. That's who she is. And that fact tips the scale in Simon the Pharisee's mind as he's checking out Jesus That tips the scales. Surely he's not a prophet, because if he was, he would know who this is, and he wouldn't let her be doing this to him. So he dismisses him. But what Simon doesn't realize, one of the sweetest things about Jesus is that Jesus is actually a friend of sinners. Sinners like this woman, and sinners like this Pharisee who doesn't think he's a sinner. He is here and present and available to everybody. This is one of the points from last week. Available to all with an agenda. As a good friend of sinners, he's available with an agenda seeking to expose our sin and call us to repentance and faith in him so as to be forgiven of our sins. A forgiveness that would then lead to a display of loving devotion like this woman is caught up in at this moment. Jesus is available, seeking to to bring people into forgiveness so that loving devotion would flow out of them because as he ties us together, this sense of forgiveness, this knowing it and living in it, leads to such devotion. Simon, why don't you care? That's the diagnostic aspect of last week. As you'll recall, we looked at this. Jesus is dealing with Simon, particularly last week, that was our focus. Look Look at this. Why isn't that anything not at all remotely like you. The diagnostic piece. Is it because you don't think you need to be forgiven and you're not forgiven, you're not actually saved, you're not a Christian? There's one piece of last week which we use this passage in that regard and we also can use it as a way of helping our own growth because we see the connection that Jesus ties between this loving devotion, this this sense of nearness and and wonder at Jesus. Where does it come from? Living in and experiencing this, this forgiveness of our sins, this salvation. So we find ourselves lacking and, and weak and growing cold. We remind ourselves of the gospel and what has happened to us. The fact that we stand forgiven and saved. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. Help in growing in our devotion to Jesus. Remembering it, our forgiveness. Resting assured in it. These points about Jesus and this woman and salvation and forgiveness and resting assured in it, all those elements together, what we're going to be examining this morning, mostly from verses 48 to 50, towards the end of this passage. So though we're going to give attention to Jesus' conversation with the woman, because the whole thing holds together, I'm going to read the whole passage, but really our attention will be at the end of it, and I'm going to make two observations from those verses at the end. But let me begin by reading the story beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, 
when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, You see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's the passage. And looking at the last few verses, I'll make two observations. Here's the first one. Touching upon the central issue in this passage, a a very important issue that comes up in their question about the identity of Jesus. Here's the point. More than a prophet... Jesus is the Lord who himself can forgive sins. More than a prophet, Jesus is the Lord who himself can forgive sins. That's the question that Simon had that prompted him to invite him over for dinner. Who is Jesus exactly? What is he? And it's the same question they ask in verse 49. Who is this? And while we know the answer to that, we we understand this question, it would do us a lot of good to to pay attention to it again and to remind ourselves of it, to look at it and clarify for it, because overlooking this, forgetting this question, leads to a bunch of trouble in our lives. It is very common for us to turn Jesus, for for Jesus to become kind of of a truth or a doctrine, and to forget that behind statements of fact, propositions, there is actually a being who has drawn near, this being who has drawn near to us, to remember that and to look at and to ask, who is he exactly who has drawn near to me and who communes with me? It would do us a lot of good to remember this, So we look at the passage to see what it tells us about Jesus because then this Jesus is going to do the second point, which they're connected. 
So in the first point, we look and say, well, who is Jesus? What, what do we find out about him? Verses 40 to 47, Jesus is talking to Simon about the woman in part, but he's talking to Simon for Simon's sake. That was last week. And then in 48, he turns to speak to her directly, saying, your sins are forgiven. And as I mentioned last week, the grammar here, as well as down in verse 50, your faith has saved you. The grammar emphasizes something that already is. We might say, we might put it like this, your sins are in the condition of forgiven. You yourself are in the state of saved. He's talking to her about something that already is. He's not in the moment, right at that moment, saying, as I speak these words, you pass from condemned to forgiven. You pass from, from lost to saved. He's not saying right now. It has already happened before verse 48. We don't know exactly when before verse 48. We can discern, given what Jesus said about how loving much leads to much devotion, much action, the fact that she had premeditated her, her coming there, she'd brought the ointment because she intended to anoint his feet in honor. We can discern from those facts that sometime before she realized, I want to go anoint Jesus, and sometime before this, this whole passage then, probably back before she was saved, forgiven. It was her faith that saved her, actually, you know, not the, not the kissing and the weeping and the wiping and the anointing. It was before some time, probably before the whole event. Jesus, in this moment, is not right now forgiving and saving her. It's important to realize for the second point, which we'll come to later. However, on the other hand, he is not just reasoning through the situation like I just did. He's not just puzzling it all out, saying, I, I see your actions, I know where those come from, and therefore then I can conclude He's not reasoning through it all, nor is he saying as a prophet, I read your mind, I understand your heart, and here's what's going on. He's speaking rather directly and personally and authoritatively. He is showing all of them, and particularly her, particularly us, something about his identity. His posture at the moment is one of immense personal authority. Look back at verse 47, right before verse 48, where we were just looking. Still speaking to Simon, talking about her sins, which are many. Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Simon, therefore, I tell you. That's him speaking to Simon. I understand, you didn't think I understood, but I understand her sins. And I say to you, that's the same language Jesus uses elsewhere when he's about to one-up another speaker or another authority. Rabbi so-and-so, teacher so-and-so, school of thought such-and-such such says this. Well, let me set it straight for you. I tell you, that's the language of Jesus when he's about to say, I'm the one actually who was going to set the record clear because I'm the one who knows. I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who issues these things. On my own authority, let me clarify for you. Her sins are many. Yes, they are forgiven. He's not just reporting like a prophet. 
He is clarifying and pronouncing like a judge. Which is exactly how they all heard him. Verse 49. They heard that wording, 48 and 50's wording, about what's already been before. They, they heard the wording. I mean, they, they heard the language. They, they got it. He's talking about something that already is. They heard all that. And they heard the personal authoritative pronouncement in what he said, and they are shocked by it. Who is this who even forgives sins? And their statement changes the grammar. The grammar changes is actually kind of important here because you see what he said is about something in the past, but, but how it hit them was, was present. They change the tense of their remark to be what is right now and what is ongoing. Who is this who forgives sin? Not forgives. Who is this who forgives sin? That's what they get from Jesus' comment, from his posture, from his statement. Her sins are forgiven. Their question had been, is he a prophet? And if they understood him to be answering prophetically with insight, they would have said, oh, he is. Great. Problem solved. That's not how they answer. They understood, oh no, problem magnified because this man just said what only God can say. This man just forgave sin. Who is this who forgives sins? It's a huge problem for them because it brings up the issue of blasphemy just like it did back in chapter 5 when Jesus forgave the sins of the paralytic. Remember that back there? The man lowered down through the roof in the house and Jesus says your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and scribes there say very similarly, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The answer, nobody. But here is one who himself does so. And so that you may know I have authority, get up, walk home. In chapter 7, so that you may know I have authority, look, like he said to the messengers of John, look, see the power of the kingdom at work through me. This Jesus is more than a prophet. He is the Lord himself. Sit under this. Let it rest upon you. Contemplate. He is the Lord himself. The ruler over heaven and earth. Here, now, in this room, at this table, lying down right next to these guys. God. The one with all divine authority over paralysis, chapter 5, and leprosy and all other diseases and all ailments and all the demonic and death itself. This Jesus, who is he? He's the creator and the recreator, the sustainer and the renewer of life. He is the Lord. And most importantly for our context, what that means and judge. Creator and sustainer and recreator and healer and restorer. And for us right now, and judge. If he is that, 
He is the judge. He is the one with authority to render final and binding verdict over the present lives and eternities of every man and woman and child on earth. He is the one who can forgive sin. The only one. And that one is present in this room meekly and mercifully by first name talking to Simon, attempting to draw out his sin so as, last week, to heal him. That one graciously holding out in front of Simon and everybody else there a a tremendous opportunity. And that is the one who speaks to this woman, what we're going to see in the second point. But the second point loses some of its punch, some of its grandeur, if you don't understand who it is that speaks it. And if Jesus has become only like an idea, a concept, a doctrine, a theory, and don't realize he is a being, and and he he is the Lord, drawn near. Christian people, Never mind, never mind the world. This, this is clearly the problem of the world, that they think little of Jesus. If at all thinking about him, they think little of him. Christian people. Brothers and sisters, we think too, too little and too infrequently of Jesus. The Lord drawn near. Who is he? He is not just a prophet. He's not just a, a, a good teacher. He is God Almighty, and in our context, He is the judge. Which then makes the second point, it should make the second point, alarmingly, amazingly, shockingly glorious. It isn't glorious. It isn't alarming and shocking if Jesus is another guy. If it's a Bible doctrine. But if it's the judge, then when he says, second point, rest assured, the salvation found in Jesus is sufficient and certain. That's the second observation here. Rest assured, the salvation found in Jesus is sufficient and certain. When that sentence comes out of the mouth of that judge, it has power in it. This is the second observation. It arises from this earlier fact that I I talked about already. I were careful to note it. That Jesus speaks to the woman and he is not in that moment forgiving her. 
She's already forgiven prior to verse 48 sometime. But he's still addressing her sin and the forgiveness of it and addressing her faith and the genuineness of it and her salvation. He's addressing all that from the position of personal authority. He is the judge from the bench, if you will, addressing that reality. What's he doing? Woman, you are, in fact, this is the way it is. Come here. If you're, you're in a crowd in that room, and you're the prostitute, it's got to have a little bit of a, uh, come here. I'm going to talk to you. This is the way it is. You are forgiven. You are saved, says the judge from the bench. Probably not with that tone. But I say that, I use that tone to try to get something across here. This should ring in our ears. Forgiven. Done. We don't really, we don't really, we doubt that. It needs to ring in your ears. The judge, that one, the Lord, on his bench. Let me set the record straight. I say to you, forgiven. Woman, you are in fact in this way forgiven. You are in fact saved. Rest assured of this. Go in peace. What is that? It's the, it's the judge from the bench telling her something that she already knows, that's why she's there. If she didn't think that, she wouldn't be moved with this great love and devotion to have even arrived with the ointment. She already knows, but evidently needs to know. Be reassured of. We can see a few hints, if we look at the text, we can see a few hints as to why she might need to be reassured of this. We take clues from the context. She knows that she's known as a sinner, and she knows they all still think of her as a sinner. She knows her past. She probably is quite aware, when she finishes there, that everybody's looking at her, and she's committed a massive social faux pas that just further alienated her from the powers that be. They are so judgmental of her that they are actually judgmental of Jesus for not attacking her. How much do they condemn her? If Jesus didn't speak to her here, wouldn't it be easy? So I'm guessing from the context of the passage. Wouldn't it be easy for her to walk out, to leave in some way humiliated and further ostracized? She's going to go back into this town. And how are they going to deal with her tomorrow? begin to second-guess herself and her commitment to God, perhaps. Maybe I am just a sinner and a screw-up. Maybe that was way, way, way wrong to have poured out all of my, all of my heart and, and everything I had to him. Maybe that was a big mistake, and I'll never do that again. 
and to be pressed into conforming to what the people around her expect of her and to try to always live getting out from underneath of her reputation. I'm just guessing at that. It's not in the text. I'm guessing about the clues, but I'm guessing those sorts of things because that would be easy for us. We, we kind of know that sort of experience. Satan and our proud flesh and others around us all very easily exploit the sin that we know we've sinned and are ashamed of. And when we get reminded of it, it bears down on us. It's just crushing and humiliating and we want to go and hide. And when other people bring those things up and hurl accusations at us, or we know they're going to, Aren't we tempted to avoid them and to try to perform our way into a, a better, smiley, shiny version of myself in front of other people? And don't I in my moments of sin, don't you in your moments of sin, kind of begin to wonder, does God actually, actually approve of me? As a little voice speaks to you, not you. you know, contrary to the song, even me, even me, not you, not you, not for that. We live kicking ourselves, feeling kicked by others, or condemned and self-condemning. And in so doing, we are doubting the truth. Doubting the power of the gospel. Doubting the doctrine of justification. That teaching from God to us about how it is that people are justified, made right in God's eyes. We so easily lapse back into, having been brought out of it, I'm talking about Christians now, having been brought out of it, we so easily lapse back into a, the way that I make myself make myself right before God and right in the eyes of other people, the way I make the world work all around me, the way I gain God's acceptance is by self-performance works of some sort or another. We lapse back towards that very easily. And then knowing, realizing that I don't have the works that would make me right, then we feel condemned. The thing we need to know in those places, in those moments, the thing we need to know on the authority of the judge himself, from God himself to us, the thing we need to know is the truth, the reality the rock-solid firmness of the doctrine of justification. You are, in fact, in your worst moments, you are, in fact, saved. By me, not by you, by me, by my works, you trust them, your sins are forgiven, and you are saved. Did you already know that? Yes, that's why you're here. Do you doubt that? Every day. Every day. So what a gracious blessing it is that when this Jesus says to her, 
when he says to you, do you you feel this? This is... (laughs) At this moment right here, as we're working through this passage, through this sermon, at this moment right here, it's where I kind of in my mind say, oh God, the Spirit help me. Because we teeter on something right here. Where either this remains just facts about the identity of Jesus and the doctrine of justification, or it comes home to you and you are changed. Christian, are you saved? Are you forgiven? Yes. And Jesus, in wonderful, precious kindness, wants to say to you in the moments when you doubt that, honest to goodness, the salvation found in me is sufficient. Honest to goodness. You all have, we all have our wicked deeds and they are many and all of them have been taken off of your shoulders and so says Jesus, laid onto mine. There is not any unpaid, any too awful, any too shameful sin that remains on you that you must kind of posture yourself or, or work to protect yourself or remove yourself from. It's all on me. Even the sin in which you are sinning at this moment and don't realize it, the sin you'll sin tomorrow and be shocked by, I won't be. All of it is on my account. And it actually was paid for. Honestly. My atonement is sufficient to pay for all of your sin. Surely and truly, it is certain you stand forgiven. You are clean as sinner, yes, and saint, surely. And the banner that he's written over you, Christian, is my beloved. It is sufficient and it is certain. So says Jesus, the judge from the bench to you. And in this room... There are a whole bunch of other guys he's not talking to. He's talking to her. Your faith has saved you. I don't know who I'm talking to here. So I I throw that out there as a caveat. It might be that you're not the one Jesus is talking to. Your faith has saved you. I'm not trying to draw a fine line here. I'm not trying to, to send you into looking at your navel. What's my faith like? No, I'm, I'm saying there are some of us here, you know you're not a Christian. And I'm inviting you to is something glorious. A sufficient and sure salvation. Christian, church, realize this. A sufficient and sure salvation has been given to you And Jesus pronounces that over you who know it. He pronounces it over you again anyway and then kindly with that sends you out into the world. Go in peace. 
Peace with him because justification is real. Peace with yourself because you no longer, there is no shame and there is no condemnation that rests on you. And peace with the world all around you because as his child, as the one he holds in his hand, he has everything for you. There's no need to fear. Go in peace. It is not just Jesus' way of saying, goodbye, have a nice day. Go out no longer in turmoil. Go out no longer in doubt. Go out no longer in fear. Go out with no, no more churning and no more unrest within. But go out like a child sitting in its mother's lap, like a weaned child whose soul is at rest. Go. Rest assured. I choose that wording, rest assured, on purpose, because rest assured kind of conceptually connects to peace. But I also chose that wording to enable us to think about an error. Because too often, maybe even some of us here in the room, too often any talk about assurance, about surety of salvation, about certainty of salvation, too often Christians, we hear the language of assurance of salvation and it becomes something, it results in something soft and meaningless and powerless in us. Too often we think of Assurance of salvation, if you want to put a phrase on it. Kind of like people think of income tax and withholding. Income tax and withholding from a paycheck. Once a worker, once we've run the numbers and double-checked them and have become assured that we have sufficient money being withheld from each paycheck so that we are certain that there will be no tax or penalty, and perhaps even, we hope, a bit of return reward come April, then, follow that, we've checked, we've understood the facts, and we are now resting assured that there is sufficient money being withheld so that there will be no penalty but perhaps reward, then, we breathe a sigh of relief and never think about it again. You don't double-check every two weeks. Run the numbers again. You let it ride. Done thinking about that problem. Checked off the box. I've got the proper withholding. There will be no penalty at the end. Let's get on with life. We can safely forget about it I'm assured it's all going to be okay. And that is not how this is supposed to work. Rather, we are supposed to think of assurance like a tank crew thinks about its armor. Armor on a tank. Specifically, and don't worry, though I would love to talk about this another time. This is not going to become a military history lesson. Specifically, we should think like this particular sort of tank crew 
a Soviet tank crew in 1941. Don't worry about the details. I'll tell you what you need to know. Germany invaded the Soviet Union in 1941. And to everybody's surprise, the new Soviet tanks had much better armor than the Germans were prepared for. The German anti-tank guns were too weak to hurt them. Think like one of those tank crews. We get shot at and hit repeatedly. I hear it. I feel it. You're inside of a tank. When the shell bounces off, you hear it. You feel it. Again and again and again. We get shot at and hit repeatedly. But nothing penetrates. Nothing pierces and destroys. Hmm. They can't hurt us. We are safe and secure from every attack and every harm. So, what's next? Sigh of relief. Let's never think about that again. Sigh of relief. Let's retreat and go into hiding. Let's sue for peace. Let's get out of the tank and run away. No. Having become assured of the sufficiency of the armor around me and the safety of me in this armor, engage. Engage. Not to shoot at and destroy and kill, and that's where the analogy breaks down, but to engage with this world all around like Jesus engages with the world and like he means for his people to engage with the world, safe and secure in him. To be meek and merciful in love and in faith filled with hope, living in this world that is dark and hostile all around for its good and for Christ's honor in it. A people who know do you know this? Yeah, but you really know it. Who know they are forgiven. Who know they are safe, certainly so. That God's hand is around them and they are protected and sheltered and nothing can take them out of that hand and they will be carried all the way home. And in the meantime, every attack that strikes will, will reverberate in your ears indeed but will not penetrate and destroy. To know that is what empowers you to say, here's my life as I engage with and lay it down in front of you. To live in the face of all of that trial and tribulation that will come in that, knowing for certain that you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Do you remember from the beginning how that quote began? 1 Peter 1, that was verse 9. 1 Peter 1, 8, rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, knowing that you are receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. To rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. To engage with the world, rejoicing with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Because you know, you rest assured, a certain, a certain salvation is mine.
May God cause us to rest assured in this sufficient and certain salvation. May the Spirit of God cause these truths, perhaps in answer to a prayer like in Ephesians 3. The end of Ephesians 3, Paul prays that the Spirit would give strength to God's people, to God's people, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. Wait a minute, don't Christians already have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith? Why is he praying for God's people to have Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith? I think what he's getting there is what we're talking about right here. Do you know it? Yeah, you need to know it. Is Christ in you? Yeah, Christ needs to be in you. To dwell down deeply within you. There's a little emphasis on the word in Ephesians. To dwell down deeply within you. That you would know, and resting in this love, that you would know how wide and high and long and and deep and vast is the love of God for me in Christ. Do you know that, Christian? May the Spirit of God press it onto you. May the Spirit of God press it on to you. May He say to you who already know you are saved, rest assured it is certain you are forgiven, your sins are wiped away. Sometimes this happens in an answer to a prayer or in a reasoning through the logic of, of a doctrine. And sometimes God's Spirit just pours out on us love. Maybe He'd do that with you that the love of God for you would become precious and sweet and overwhelming even, captivating, perspective-setting, that he would, you would see with eyes open, you would see His loving salvation of you, His committed fellowship to you, your sure future in His hands, that that perfect love then would cast out all fear and you would engage with the world for Him. Christian, Christian, As I said at the beginning, it's an open question whether I can communicate this to you or not. I ask the Spirit to communicate to you some, some, some bit of something wonderful here. Jesus means to, to send this woman out from this encounter more certain and more sure of what she already knew when she came in. For some reason or another, he thinks she needs to know that. Do you need to know that? Your your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Rejoicing with the joy that is inexpressible and full of glory because you are, in fact, receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. May God's Spirit open your eyes to that, flood your heart with it, build you up with it, utterly convince you of it. Let me pray. Father, thank you. What else is there to say but thank you? 
that you would save us, that you would inform us that you have saved us, and then that you would inform us again that honestly, to truth, you have saved us. Thank you for all of that. To some of us here this morning, maybe you need to speak that yet a third time to them that they are in fact yours. And to some here this morning, woo them and show them an opportunity to be forgiven. To know the, the judge as a forgiver, a savior and a protector. Would you build up your church, please? As we take in hand these communion elements and remember the facts behind the doctrine of justification, that the cross has taken sin off of us, laid it on you and been paid for. As we look at your, your blood and your body in these elements, remember those things, Lord, would you Speak to each person here, whatever each person here needs to hear. Assure and woo us and build us up. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We now turn our attention to the communion table as the ushers come forward and explain our procedure here. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.